Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, raise a kid, uh, probably not get a job, but try to get a job and survive uh, COVID-19. Um, I am here with uh, Varsha Venkata Subramanian, um, a colleague of mine, um, who is uh, studying for, for her oral exams. Like, when, when, when are your orals, Varsha? My orals are on May 12th at 9 a.m., uh, so they're coming up close. I think twenty days. Twenty days. Okay. And what? Just rem- what? What do you actually do in an oral exam? Yeah. So what you do in an oral exam, starting from the beginning, is at the end of your second year of your PhD, uh, usually second, sometimes end of third year, you find five people willing to be on your committee. One person chairs the committee, and uh, of these five people, you have three different, uh, four different fields. So your first field is what you're getting your PhD in. So for me, that's North America. So for my first field, I have two people who are examining me. These are professors, right? Yeah, these are professors. Okay. So I have Caitlin Rosenthal, who's examining me on U.S. history uh, until 1865. Um and I have Rebecca McLennan, who's examining me uh, on U.S. history from 1865 to the present. And then I have a second field, which is uh, global history and American foreign relations really broadly. Uh, and yeah, that's, specific- a really, that's a broad. <laughs> yeah, it's a really broad field, but it's ma- specifically on global history since uh, the end of World War One. And uh, the professor who's examining me on that is actually going to be the chair of my dissertation committee. It's Daniel Sargent. And then... My last field um, in history is British Empire and decolonization, specifically from 1757 onwards. And it mainly focuses on South Asia, but I really focus it on development and decolonization and development and colonization. So I look at Africa as well. Um, And it's, uh, yeah. And James Vernon is questioning me on that. And then my outside field is law and social theory. It's Christopher Tomlin's at the law school. So, so you said that you got this committee together, like at the end of a, the your your second year. Like, how long ago was that? Like, how long have you been preparing for this exam? I've been preparing for this exam for about a year now. Uh, yeah, a, a year. year. Yeah, I I got started really early because I um, I'm a little bit paranoid, and so I was pretty sure I was going to bomb it. So uh, I got started early and I asked the professors very early on because a couple of the professors I asked first were like, no, I'm going to be on leave or no, I can't examine you on this. I have to do other stuff. Um, so I, I made sure to get started early and then I got lists from them or made my own lists um, and sent those by the end of um well, you got you to explain this to me because what does it mean to prepare? Like, I can't imagine preparing for an exam for a year. My experience of college was that like I prepared for an exam in an hour and you mentioned exactly. these things called lists. Like what do you, what do you do in a year to prepare for an exam? Yeah. So the first thing you have to know about the oral exam, at least at Berkeley, is that it is an exam, not just with five examiners, but those five examiners can question, are going to question you each for 20 minutes each. Right. And they're going to question you basically on any book that is relevant to that field. And so in order to choose those books, the first thing I do, uh, first thing I did was look at all the classes I had taken. And I put books from all the classes I had taken with these different professors and other professors into, you know, these five large lists. And then I looked at other lists of books from online, uh, from other colleagues, 
And basically, I made five lists, one list uh, or two lists on U.S. history, one list on global history and American foreign policy, one list on British Empire, and one list on legal history and law and social theory. And these so have, lists you have basically five contain- lists and then what do you yeah. do with like my my to- experience of, of 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 studying for my orals was that I had a bunch of lists and as when I was 20 days off uh, away from my orals, I solved the problem of all the books in my list by deleting a large number of those books from my lists. Yeah. So have you been uh, reading all these books? Like, what do you do? Like, I, I think that I think that when I, I I've told people my moral oral exam story, they're 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 really kind of shocked by how much reading there is. And I want what do you actually do every day? Like, how do you manage this? Yeah. So last September, when I submitted the list, um, I. Actually, had close to like 800 books on all five combined, including articles. And uh, the professors were like, Varsha, no, um, you have to cut a lot of this out. And so I ended up cutting off a lot. And so once I cut off a lot, and I have been deleting uh, since then in that process, like weekly, I'm deleting a couple books here and there. But the way I started preparing and the way I started reading was I would first, um, for all the people who uh, respect, uh, you know, uh, download laws. Sorry. But the first thing I did was download yeah, cover up as, your ears. Yeah. The first thing I did was download any books I could that I could find online, either through the library or through other extra legal Nefarious sources. Nefarious means. Yeah. Nefarious means. Um, I downloaded all the books, organized them into folders and I started reading. So the first mistake I made, um, which is a mistake I, Un, uh, like I unlearned this mistake when I started grad school, but I seem to have made the mistake again was reading the books very, very closely. Um, and then I realized after one or two weeks, I was only reading like three books. And I was like, no, that's a mistake. So I created a process by which I would read. And so my process was I'd read the intro and conclusion. After reading the mm-hmm. intro and conclusion, I would create a page of notes, like mm-hmm. in my own words, no quotes. So I have an Evernote. Yeah folder. Um, and in that folder, I have like a crap ton of notes of just really short impressions of these books, just from their intros and conclusions. And mm-hmm. then go on trusty J store. Um, mm. and I would find book reviews of these yes. books. Um, and then I would read those book reviews, uh, very closely because they are much, they are much shorter than the actual books themselves. After getting other colleagues' impression on these books, I would go back and look at the table of contents of a book and choose a couple of chapters here and there and read those. After I was done doing that three-step process of the intro conclusion, reading reviews, reading a couple chapters, I would go back to that one page of notes, edit it, and add a few quotes. And now I've done that for basically... I would say 70% of the books have that one pager. Um, A lot of others I got lazy and I don't have a one pager on but I, I've tried to make a one pager for everything but then another I, 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 thing I, I, that professor I really, oh, I really just I, I really just want to like highlight what you've done here because I think that that when people who are not academic historians read academic history books they find them really kind of dull and turgid yeah. often and that's I think because they don't know how historians have been trained to read books and and Varsha you just gave a, a, a really good description of what I call grad school reading. Um, yeah. We read books not as an experience, but to f- 
figure out what kind of tool they are. Books for exactly. us are tools that we use. And you're telling you're you're describing a process by which you look at these books and you figure out what kinds of problems that they solve, what mm-hmm. they're doing, what you can learn from them in the most efficient way possible. And then once you've done that, you can put the book down. Is that a, a, exactly. a decent description of your process? Yeah, that's exactly what my process was. So I did that. And then I realized, um, as I talked to the professors on my committee, that uh, a couple of them, actually all of them, wanted me to do something on top of that, which was not just read these books and take notes, but they wanted me to create syllabi, basically fake Mm -hmm. syllabi, either grad school syllabi or uh, for an undergrad class of individual sections of the lists. So for my American uh, lists, I I created syllabi on the early republic, the colonial era, uh, uh, slavery, the Civil War, mass uh, mass society and market politics. Um, and then for the second half, I created a syllabus for Reconstruction, the Progressive Era, the interwar period, uh, the... Um, yeah, and this, and this, this, this is, this is. The, I, I, I want to just make make explicit what 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 this is doing. Yeah. I just said that grad students and 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 his, history academics used their books, their tools yep. that they use, and so your professors are saying, not only do you want to do we want to see that you know what the tools are, we want you to use them, use them yep. to, to as you would use them if you were a professor by by making an actual syllabus for a class that you would teach, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And what the syllabus does is after you've grouped these books together and then created a syllabus out of them is for you to create a narrative out of these books, not just a historical narrative of what is happening in the period that we call decolonization or the idea we call decolonization, but what have historians said about it over the years? And so you're creating historiography implicit in the syllabus uh, and you're you're able to show your professor, I know the content of what I call decolonization. I know what it is. I know when it started, when it ended, how it went about. And then I also know what are the main arguments that historians have made about decolonization? What is important about decolonization? And through the syllabus, I make my own, um, you know, interpretation of that historiography. And the reason you, you've mentioned you do this, this word historiography, what, what what does that mean? Yeah. What's a historiography? Historiography is literally just the history of history, but more technically what historiography means is when you're reading a historiography paper, you're analyzing how have historians changed their minds about a certain subject and Mm. why have they changed their minds about a certain subject? Is it because they have new sources? Is it because they have different tools they are using to interpret the same events, et cetera, et cetera. And Understanding historiography is really important, and the reason the professors ask you to do this in preparation for your oral exams is because the oral exam itself is the first step or the, the, the precursor to you becoming a candidate a PhD candidate. And a PhD candidate is basically someone who has not written a dissertation, but they have proven to their committee that they can teach a course on these said fields and that they understand the historiography of these fields, which intimately relate to their dissertation. So the Great. fields that I've chosen relate what, to my what's, dissertation. What's, what's, so, so, so how has this been studied right, right now? We're all in quarantine. I'm, I'm talking to you yeah. from my uh, uh, baby room and, and you're talking to me from your apartment. I, I have not been in the physical presence of anybody who's not my wife and child for like six weeks. How have you been doing this, this, this isolating and difficult process of reading for your orals in quarantine? I 
The only issue with quarantine is that any books that I have not scanned or downloaded through extra legal means, I cannot get access to. Um, and <laughs> so the isolation is that, is that is that actually a benefit? <laughs> it has been a benefit because all the professors on uh, my committee, um, especially ones with longer lists like uh, my American list and and. Uh, my foreign policy list have said, um, can you cut books off of this? Because you don't need to read this many, especially if you don't have access to them. And if you can't find them, you know, online or through the library, replace it with an article. Find an article on a similar subject or by a similar author and replace it with an article. So that's what I've been doing because 90% of articles are available online um, through the library. And I don't have to, you know, read a whole book. Um, but the difficult part about reading an article is that you really have to read it. Uh, there's no like review of an article. Yeah, there's no yeah. review of an article. So I would say reading in quarantine for comps has been even more isolating, not just because I'm physically alone, um, but also because when I was forced to go to the library, the grad library every day or the other library or even the department every day, I was um, encountering other people who are studying for comps and their progress motivated my own progress. But here, uh, alone mm. in my apartment, I can't force myself to go message other people studying for comps or FaceTime them or even Zoom call with them and be like, hey, um, what have you done today? Uh, so I can force myself to do the same yeah. thing because that's Hard just to sort keep of weird. Accountability. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Varsha, try writing your dissertation. That's that's <laughs> writing your dissertation. I said, yeah. Okay. Let's 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 talk about one of the uh, subjects on your list. Um, something that I I I I I I was curious about this because I don't know a ton about 20th century history at all. And I've, I found myself frequently tripped up with understanding one of the big things that you talk about. And I, I thought you could educate me about it. So Varsha, tell me about decolonization, that one of the themes of your list is decolonization, right? Yeah. And so, so I thought maybe, maybe just, just to set the scene, tell us like a little potted history of colonization. Like what's, where, how do we begin the story of decolonization? Like what does colonization mean? What happens? What are the big processes? Yeah. So very technically colonization is basically a process by which uh, another power dominates the surrounding land or faraway land and its components. By dominate, I don't mm -hmm. just mean takes control of territory, but specifically subjugates the indigenous population. So mm -hmm. um, colonization usually includes the migration of this dominant power into these colonies. And that results in a settler colony like the United States or Australia. But they also develop other types of colonies that are basically, this is how the British Empire got started, that are basically individual and private companies that set up trading posts, plantations, uh, relationships with indigenous peoples. And then these massive companies end up being subjugated by the, the, the metropolis. So the biggest example of this, and the most important example of this, is the British East India Company. So the British East India Company um, started in uh, started as like a private company, and it built a relationship with the Mughals, uh, which is a, a the ruling power in in India in the seventeenth, late seventeenth, and early eighteenth century. And the way it 
developed that relationship is that it gained control through military means and military relationships and trade relationships of a lot of territory in in India. And then after a major case, uh, basically a scandal, uh, the British basically took control and you had direct rule in India. And this period of British colonization in India is called the British Raj. But the history of colonization in general, uh, if you took North America as an example, uh, North and South America, is that it started with various European countries looking for trade routes to Asia. And they're not just looking for trade routes to Asia, they're also looking for um, major goods, major commodities. First it was spices and then it turns out to be other commodities, right? So you see cotton, in North and silver. Yeah, cotton, silver, uh, rice, etc. Uh, sugar. Indigo. Sugar is really important, right? And so mm. the way it started in North and South America is first the, Sp- uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese ended up taking control of a big portion of South America and a decent amount of North America and then the British sent in their own individual LLCs as well as you know royal envoys the French did so as well and what these different groups do is they build first they build um trading relationships with indigenous people or they exclude indigenous people completely um, and then starts the process of, of subjugation, right? So if you took okay, the so English we, we, example. We have, the, we have this big process where yeah. uh, there are mostly European powers you're talking about first have yes. a, 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 a financial or mercantile interest in an area. Yes. They find a place overseas that they're interested in a particular commodity like sugar or cotton or gold, and they set up particular trading relationships, and then that those those outposts grow mm-hmm. to the point where these 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 uh, European powers are governing those places. And you mentioned so far uh, the Americas um, mm-hmm. and Asia. Um, is this so? Am I right in thinking that this is this is purely a story of Europeans? Uh, subjugating non-Europeans? Yeah. Uh, This is mainly a story of uh, Europeans subjugating non-Europeans. However, not in my list and not in my studies. There are other examples as well. Um, But this is mainly a story of how Europe ends up dominating the world in this specific format, which is colonization, right? And so first it starts with North America and South America uh, and then Asia. And then eventually in the late 19th century and the mid 19th century, you see the rise of colonization in Africa and different African states Mm. by not just, you know, Britain and France, but also by Germany, um, right? So it's not, um, and even the Dutch. So it's not just... um, It's not just a few powers in Western Europe. It's uh, basically as many European powers as possible try to get a piece of the pie. And Mm -hmm. there's different stages to colonization, as you clearly pointed out. There's this mercantile stage. Then, depending on the area of the world, there's a settler colonial stage. And then there's this, you know, stage of late colonialism, which is really evident in Africa, which is uh, basically distinctly extraction and then a process depending on the state in Africa of, of settler colonization. Um, and so, yeah, the most like di- uh, disturbing example is, is the Congo uh, and the extraction that happened in the Congo. Uh, King Leopold's Congo is one of the most horrifying examples of colonization and late colonization uh, that, that we can show. 
Okay. Well, so let's 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 now talk about this process called decolonization. Is th- is yeah. this something that is like kind of always happening, or or would you give it like a precise start? Like if you if you had a course on decolonization, when would it begin? Like what's what's your opening scene? Yeah. So if I had a course on decolonization, my opening scene, uh, mainly because I'm a U.S. historian, would be the American Revolution, right? I would specifically explain why the North American mainland colonies under Britain decided to separate from the British. And that process is really important because it creates the a lot of the ideology that we see in the 20th century for mm. independence, right? And they are one of the first colonies to break from the colonial motherland, and they declare independence, as we all know, in 76. They're recognized by a free country, they're recognized by Britain as an independent country by 1783, right? And the reason I would begin with the United States is I would explain how this idea of self-determination and uh, this idea of independence sort of originates, at least in this distinct form, with the United States. And a lot of the ideology of, uh, of self-determination and self-governance specifically is developed as the American Republic grows and, you know, and cements these ideas, not just in the United States, but eventually in the world after the end of World War One with this uh, with the treaty of World War One. Uh, Wilson's 14 points are really important. And so the second okay, section of the class. Are. What, 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 what yeah. are Wilson's 14 points and and how do those help begin? So is this this period of decolonization seems to be almost coterminous with the period of colonization, right? Yeah. Like if I were starting a, a class on 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 like the British Empire, like Act Two would start in 1783, you know, like it, yeah. or sorry, maybe even 1767 with the end of the seven years war. Like yeah. this is not very far into the, into the, into the big period of European imperialism. You're saying mm-hmm. even then there's this ideology beginning with the American revolution of self-determination and uh, independence that, that begin to undermine coloni- colonialism itself. Is that, is that a, a, a correct a uh, uh, gloss of of of, of your position or, or no? Definitely, and I would emphasize in this first section of the class that it's not just about the United States. Even though I would I would center the United States, it's also about other uh, other important revolutions that are happening during this period. And mainly, another example I would contrast with, or at least compare with, is the Haitian Revolution, which happens. Uh, it, it begins in 1791 a few years after American independence and ends in 1804 with the colony's independence, right, from France. And I would emphasize these two revolutions because it shows how in different areas of, uh, of North America, there is a successful defense of, of the freedoms that they have won and also a continuous collaboration with that metropole. And that's why I would emphasize these two events as the beginning of colonization, because I would show how political independence does not mean complete uh, an end of complete ties with this dominating co- colonial power. Right? Tell, tell me how that works. Like, I'm, I'm yes. not, I, yeah, how, I thought like 1776, like America, like thumbed its nose at Britain and, and, and became free. Like you're saying that, that they're like, that was the end, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, someone could argue that, but I argue that the period of decolonization doesn't really end if not for 
another type of collaboration with the former colonial power, right? So when Britain, uh, when the United States wins independence in 1783, initially it has deep animosity with the United Kingdom for a couple of decades. And then comes the War of 1812, which is the first major conflict with Britain after the United States had declared independence. And after that war, which is basically a drop, <laughs> it me. was it was the British won. We yeah. come on, Varsha. The British the British won and 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 they only it was only a draw because the British were fighting a much more much bigger and more important war and they couldn't be bothered with they could have they could have won it if they wanted to. Come on. I'm an eighteen twelve uh, uh politician. That's what British historians like to say, but as an American historian, I will like I would like to emphasize that it was more of a draw. And I would really argue that victory. the United States win. I think had, the United States actually won. Because the United States actually won. After they had one victory that happened after the peace treaty was signed. A single victory after the peace That's, treaty was signed. That's the most important one, man. Um, I, I think the United States really won because at that point, the United States is able to say, especially to Europe, which is, you know, considered this old world, that we are a legitimate international power. And okay. this starts the process of the United States really, really decolonizing because it is now establishing a, a relationship with the, Uni- with the United Kingdom. And that relationship okay. flourishes and, and develops. And I think the same is true for Haiti uh, in that it still maintains connections with France, right? Mm. Um, and this is definitely true of African decolonization all the way into the 20th century. There are a plethora of African states that have to maintain their relationship with their European colonizers in order to remain legitimate. And then they end up joining international organizations and collaborating with their former colonizers. Okay. Right? And so these, um, in, in these examples of these early decolonization stories are saying that, that first yeah. there's, there's some sort of conflict, but that the mm-hmm. conflict does not fully sever the uh, uh, unequal relationship between colonizer and colonized. And it takes, in some cases, a second kind of conflict, even like the War of 1812, something that is that is a stalemate. Take us take us to to the Treaty of Versailles. Tell me about Wilson and and self-determination. Yeah. So basically, uh, if people don't know, World War One is fought by a bunch of different European powers and eventually the United States joins in and Wilson takes it upon himself to really be present and uh, involved in the negotiation of the peace. And so his 14 point Wilson, speech. Wilson, U.S. president, uh, uh, poli yeah. professor. Yeah. Woodrow Wilson, U.S. president, poli-sci professor, uh, racist, first Democrat elected from the South since the end of the Civil War. I think it's really important to emphasize his racist background and his support of the KKK because it shows how the promises he makes about self-determination and the promises he makes about, you know, neutrality and um, and other aspects of the Treaty of Versailles sort of ring hollow when they're mm-hmm. not really applied to Eastern Europe or non-European countries, right? Well, let's so, first, 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 tell me what those promises are, because I, I, yeah. I fall asleep in 20th century, and I know that there's there's a guy named Woodrow Wilson. I know that there's that thing called self-determination, but I, I couldn't. If somebody asked me about them in my orals, I would, I would melt into flames. So tell me what what is self-determination? What is neutrality? In, yeah, in this so, Wilsonian sort of thing, like what sort yeah. of yeah. So I think the key, the key of the a few key points from the fourteen points is first, open covenants of peace, no more secret treaties, no more secret alliances, because that, according to him, was one of the main reasons Europe entered into World War One. 
And then the second key point is freedom of navigation upon the seas. And this leads to the third point, which is equal trade covenants. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think the key points of the, you know, uh, of the speech are changing how peace has existed from before into a new system. So not just should we have open treaties, free navigation, equal trade, but we also will reduce armaments. We will adjust our colonial claims. Um, and there should also be this this um, notion of self-determination that distinct nations should be able to guide their own ruling, their own governance, their own systems without external influence. And so I think Mm. he called it independent determination of her own political development and national policy, her meaning a different nation, right? And he wants that because he believes that's one of the major things that's driving conflict and has driven conflict in Europe. But what he doesn't realize um, and what he ends up realizing through the Treaty of Versailles is drawing random lines on the map of Eastern Europe and not really giving this idea of self-determination to others other colonial nations in Asia and in Africa are it's going to create a real it's going to create a big problem and i think that's when the second stage of decolonization really begins and let's, that's, let's 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 just let's yeah. pause there because i think that this is an important moment so you have world war 1 which is ter- terrifying uh, it's it's yeah. a deeply disturbing moment and wilson has these these uh, highfalutin ideas about how to reform mm-hmm. the international system. Um, and there's lots of stuff to, to make things more equitable. No more secret treaties, no more mm-hmm. unjust trade, co- trade covenants, and for na- that nations should be able to be determine like where, wh- whether they're nations or not, right? Exactly. And you're saying yeah. that that's that. So he makes these, these universal points to make a new kind of peace. But then immediately... They're applied unequally, right? Is that what you're saying? They're applied only exactly. to, to the particular parts of Europe and not to the wider world, right? And yeah. that be- begins the second stage of decolonization. Yes. And okay. Tell me a this, story from there. Tell me. Tell me. Yeah. Tell me what happens. So this part in the course, I would talk about the crisis of empire, and I mainly would talk about the crisis of empire in the British case. Uh, during this period, mainly during the late 19th century, uh, especially ending in the, like the 1920s, there is a crisis not just in the colonies, but also in Britain them, Britain itself. Uh, the 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 catastrophe that is World War One makes a lot of British people question their hold on the empire, um, their successful hold, whether it's su- succeeding or failing, whether it's worth it, whether it benefits the United Kingdom. Mm. And finally, they will begin different justifications and start, you know, questioning uh, justifications for empire itself. In the colonies, especially, let's take India, for example, what happens in the late 19th century, especially uh, an ending in the 1920s, is that you see the rise of nationalist sentiment, anti-colonial nationalist sentiment, the idea that, so it's not just Wilson that supports this, and it's not just coming from Wilson, but it is, you know, helped by Wilson's 14 points, but the idea that indigenous people should have some control over their own policies in their own country. Um, And, you know, initially the British empire gives concessions, right? And they start by encouraging political parties and political involvement in their colonies. Uh, So a really, you know, important example in India is the formation of the Indian National Congress. And then eventually the Government of India Act that the British passed, which support, you know, certain parties and certain amounts of representation, um, but not complete freedom, 
right? And that's why this, the period of the 1920s is really important because it's when you see the rise of anti-colonial sentiment and non-Western European nationalism across the world. And by nationalism, Mm. I distinctly mean this idea that our country is worth fighting for. You know, this is not a technical definition, but like our country is worth fighting for. It's worth being independent. And it's worth being our country. Yeah. And finally, there's yeah. a thing called like, our country. Right. Yeah. And that is why World War One and the Treaty of Versailles is so important, because it allows for countries, colonies across the world who are already thinking about, you know, not just separating, but thinking about challenging their colonial powers by saying, finally, yeah, we have a thing called borders. We have a thing called, you know, independence or at least self-determination or at the very least a limited amount of power over what happens in our lives, right? And this is ex- especially clear, in my opinion, and I make this case in, you know, in my syllabi, let's say, that in the Indian case and the South Asian okay, tell, case. Tell, because- tell me about the Indian case, because the, the story is, I, I think that you're saying is that 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 in the U.S. you have the US, the, the American Revolution has creates a kind of ideology of. Um, uh, uh, self-determination and independence. And then at the end of World War One, Woodrow Wilson kind of like accidentally opens up this Pandora's box to the whole world of saying, look, the entire international system in the name of peace should be run on the lines of self-determination, independence, and equality, right? And then you say, ah, this ideology gets picked up in places that the the the, the Europeans and Americans did not expect it to be picked up in places like India. So tell me how that that if that's right, tell me how that story unfolds in India. You mentioned up to 1920. What's what's the rest of that story? Yeah. So as I mentioned, like the beginning of this is uh, is the all is the Congress party created in 1885 and a bunch of different people from across India and across South Asia starting to support that system. But even though, you know, Congress has, is emerging as this all India political organization, it doesn't have the support of most Indian Muslims. And mm. that way there are separate groups that are created um, or separate movements that are created in with different goals, right? But all of this comes together with Gandhi, uh, Mahatma Gandhi's um, nonviolent protests, right? And so his nonviolent protests and his um, his movement uh, basically- and when, when does that begin? You started in 1885. So Mahatma Gandhi, when, when, when is he like beginning to come on the political scene in India? Yeah. So he's begin. he really begins, uh, he returns to India in 1915. Um, but he really doesn't really enter the political fray until a few years later. Um, and he starts his campaign of nonviolent civil disobedience. Right. And so in his own words, like civil disobedience is civil, is civil breach of immoral statutory enactments. And so this is what I would say is the distinctness between uh, the nationalism before Gandhi and nationalism after Gandhi is that they're clearly saying that the policy by the British now is immoral. It may be, as Mm. one word can call it, legal, but now you're distinctly calling it immoral. And the British make it worse by, in 1919, there is uh, a massacre, the Jallianwala Bagh massacre. Basically, it's also called the Amritsar massacre. So this British commander, Reginald Dyer, blocks this entrance into um, uh, uh, to this uh, to this building. And they uh, these people had assembly 
assembled peacefully at this courtyard, at this walled courtyard. But Dyer blocks the uh, blocks the entrance and basically kills with over sixteen hundred rounds of of, of firing uh, three hundred and seventy nine people. I remember that number distinctly because it's it's huge, um, and. Dyer is forced to retire, um, but he's hailed as a hero in Britain. And it demonstrates to Indian nationalists at the time that the empire is beholden to not just um, uh, to not just cruelty and immoral acts, but it's specifically beholden to how public opinion in Britain views colonization. But it is not beholden to Indian Indian beliefs, Indian wants, Indian needs, right? And so the first non-cooperation movement really begins in 1920. um, And that's when Gandhi starts what's called the non-cooperation movement. Um, And finally, you have uh, British attempts to, to, let's say, like placate uh, these Indian uh, political activists with like the Government of India Act, um, with with other attempts to, to gain, to give Indians, elite Indians representation. But finally, uh, there is this, you know, uh, after the Government of India Act of 1935, there is an actual revolutionary movement for independence uh, in uh, after this period, right? And this revolutionary period of independence ends with the British finally throwing up their arms a couple of years after, uh, during World War II, and especially after World War II, and saying, fine, this is now when we're going to begin the period of decolonization. But okay. the Indian case I, I, is distinct. Right. I, I uh, want to well. just highlight something that's, 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 that is different about the way that you're narrating this yeah. um, than how I would. If, if I were telling this story, something that, that, that I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant about it all, but something I would highlight is the effect of wars on mm-hmm. weakening um, the ability of European nations to project power. So World yeah. War One and World War Two both really pound yeah. European colonial powers, and that leads to openings for nationalism. In your story, what happens first is is moral indignation at mm-hmm. uh, recognition of the injustices of the colonial powers. Is that am I correct yeah. in making that distinction, or am I misreading it? No, you're correct, because I think when I read the story of decolonization and independence movements, I really try to emphasize what's going on in the colonies. Um, Mm. Even though I am, I do consider myself a global historian, I I think the process of decolonization, at least studying it, should begin with what do the colonies and the people in these colonies actually think about decolonization? Because if you take, uh, you know, Kenya, for example, Mm. right, just really quickly, the process of decolonization for Kenya, in my opinion, begins with labor activists, free labor activists in Kenya fighting against the, the, um, the the institution and support by the British of forced labor. Right. And Mm. then starts them and then after these labor activists you know gain gain momentum though they don't succeed you see the rise of nationalism as well and nationalist movements political nationalist movements and then finally when political nationalist movements in Kenya gain enough support and control they end up subsuming these labor activists and the labor activists concerns but when independence is actually achieved, labor activists don't get the 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 wants and needs that they that they have right and that That story is so important to tell, as you know, as Cooper, one of the historians I read, points out, because it shows that political decolonization does not mean complete freedom, does not mean complete independence for all people that have been colonized. They may be separate 
politically and legally from their colonial power, but the subjugation continues. And I think that's really important for the Indian case because, yes, the Quit India movement starts in 1942. uh, And then, yes, finally, you get partition, um, uh, specifically independence for India and eventually India and Pakistan in 1947. But the process of partition is the most violent process I have ever read about, right? Because what ends up happening is it's basically a surprise for the people of South Asia when they hear on the radio that India is going to be separated into two countries um, where basically two imagine one of, one of which is separated by the other gigantic yeah. Exactly. So imagine (laughs) India looking like the face of an elephant. The two ears of the elephant are Pakistan and Bangladesh. And then the rest of that, the face of the elephant is India. That's what India looks like after 1947. But the problem, just as the problem we saw with drawing national borders at the end of World War I, the problem with drawing borders like this is that there are thousands of Muslims who live in India who who are not going to feel and who don't feel supported by the Indian government right at the point of partition. And there are thousands of Hindus and Sikhs and and non-Muslims in general who live in Pakistan and what is today Bangladesh who now have to cross borders. So the process of crossing these borders creates thousands and thousands of refugees. So partition literally forces India and Pakistan to develop a state on the fly, where they have to regulate this process, but there's not much regulation. What ends up happening is that there's lots of violence, lots of pillaging, and just a complete loss of control. And this is how the British see uh, their efficient mode of decolonization, where they just like wipe their hands together and say, bye. (laughs) That's basically Mm. what happens. And well, so let's, let's zoom out and 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 mm-hmm. just tell me, like we described the beginnings of this colonial world order. We've looked at this process of decolonization in in, in the Indian case, and you've shown how that process of decolonization is 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 not clean or complete. Yeah. Zoom out and tell me what happens to the colonial world order, say after 1945. Yeah. So after 1945, I think there's two really important stories to tell. Colonies across the world, um, not just India, but also uh, Vietnam. uh, So Indochina, states in Africa, uh, there is... uh, you know, there's theoretically decolonization movements in Australia and Canada um, all over the world start asking, not just asking, but actually violently fighting for, you know, a break from their colonial powers. And this is spurred on by the ideals of the United Nations, right? So the United mm-hmm. Nations, unlike the League of Nations, actually succeeds in existing. Uh, in the sense that the United <laughs> Nations supports this, League of uh, Nations like existed for a solid decade and did a yeah. ton of stuff. Don't don't. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fair. It did a bunch of stuff. It didn't really uh, succeed completely in decolonization, but the League. Uh, um, but neither does the United Nations, right? So when the United Nations established in 1945, basically a third of the world's population are in territories that are non-self-governing and they're dependent on colonial powers in 1945. But since then, around 80 colonies or 80 to 90 colonies have gained their independence, right? And 
this process is spurred on by the ideals of the United Nations. Um, and I think today I read this on the UN website a while ago. There's like 15 or 16 what the uh, what the UN consider non-self-governing territories. Um, and there's a fewer than a couple million of these people in these territories. So that's the one story I would tell is I would tell the importance of the United Nations and how World War II and the, the creation of the UN the ideas it supports, especially, you know, human rights, um, ends up spurring on decolonization in some form, right? And then the second story I would tell is how decolonization just becomes more and more violent, but also more and more incomplete. Um, If you take the African case, uh, various states in Africa uh, get Get, gain their independence, some before World War II and some after. And this process is violent and some and sometimes it's nonviolent. But really what it ends up creating is states that, in my opinion, are not completely capable of governing themselves. And basically, uh, they're not completely capable because the process of colonization has not just extracted their major resources, but not actually taught them and not actually given them any representation during this period or any real representation Mm. during this period. And so there's a intense period after a country uh, gains its independence uh, of uncertainty and confusion and and chaos, basically. And sometimes what ends up happening is, is dictators or autocratic regimes end up emerging. And I think a really Mm. good case of this is, um, is not just in the African States, but if you consider the decolonization uh, uh, of India, Pakistan is purportedly a democracy, but to this day, there is, it's much more autocratic than India, right? And I'm not saying India is a perfect democracy, but it's much more autocratic. It's not as autocratic as Pakistan. And that is mainly because a lot of the institutions that the British had built in South Asia centered in what is now India, but not Mm. in Pakistan, not in Lahore, not in Bangladesh. And so Bangladesh and Pakistan have struggled intensely in order to maintain democracies. And this is true of various other uh, cases, right? So the Philippines is another good example. The Philippines were a colony of the United States, basically. And they only gained their so-called independence around World War II, around uh, the end of World War II, I think. And their process of maintaining democracy is has been incredibly difficult for them. Um, And then there are cases where decolonization hasn't actually ended, I would argue, right? So Hong Kong supposedly gains uh, gains its like separation from from the UK in the late 90s. But to this day, it's fighting with with mainland China for complete independence, right? Uh, The same is true, I would argue, of Puerto Rico, um, uh, of certain states in Latin America that are still dependent, in my opinion, on European and American American support, or maybe not support, but at the very least um, involvement in order to maintain themselves, right? So, so the story that, of decolonization yeah. is not has not ended. We're still in it's not ended. this process because, of decolonization. Yeah, as some historians would argue, and this is moving past just my list and into my dissertation, really, as some historians would argue, the international institutions that are created after World War II, not just the UN, but also the IMF and the World Bank, um, as well as a, a few other in, uh, institutions, 
end up creating what, you know, some people can call like neo-colonial situations that are relationships of financial relationships, relationships between independent companies and these countries, um, various companies that are, you know, pretty extractive, that are focused on development, let's say, that's a really big word, that ends up, you know, meaning that countries like, um, uh, countries like Egypt, uh, India is a really good example, uh, Brazil, have to depend on external sources in order to maintain the even the existence and prosperity of their countries. And that proves that decolonization is not complete for these countries, unlike mm-hmm. it is for the United States, right? The, I would say decolonization has ended for the United States. And now it itself is a neo-colonial power if you consider the the territories and if you consider Puerto Rico, right? And I think well, that's- Well, the reach of American capital. Exactly. And the reach of American capital. And this is especially true, not just of the United States, but other former colonies, right? So the reach of, you know, Canada is barely mentioned in in history, but the reach of Canadian powers is pretty big, I would say, in the sense that it is a prosperous country and it has grown significantly because of its relationship, non-colonial relationship with Britain. The same is true for Australia, right? Uh, the same is true for Japan, Uh Right. So because um, because decolonization for non-white regions in uh, in the world is not complete, it's it's a continuous story. And I would argue it hasn't really ended. But I would point to three different beginning points if I had to teach a course for students. I would point to the major beginning point would be the end of the 18th century with the United States and mm-hmm. Haiti. The, another major beginning point would be the World War One era, the end of World War One in the 1920s. And another major beginning point would be the end of World War II. Um, so, so, so decolonization, three beginnings, no end. No end. That's basically <laughs> the, the story. Yeah. Well, Varsha, where, where can people find you on the internet if they want to find you? Yeah, they can go to my Twitter, uh, which is at Varsha. Extremely active Twitter, I have to say. Like a very, like, I think about 30% of all of my tweets are Varsha. Like, (laughs) yeah, and I'm I'm tweeting more every day. They're they're good tweets, Brendan. They're good tweets. They're they're, they're good, good takes. Varsha has some good takes. So basically, uh, yeah, so my Twitter is at uh, Varsha, V-A-R-S-H-A underscore V-E-N-K-A-T underscore. So that's my Twitter. Um, and yeah, I'm Great. not and, just and preparing so for orals. May, I'm also preparing for writing a dissertation under COVID-19. So yeah, and those you, are the types you, you of tweets might, you can you see online. You might have a podcast yourself that people can find uh, eventually on your on your Twitter and we will, we will uh, uh, drop yeah. it in the feed when it comes. Um, Definitely. Yeah, so Varsha underscore Venkat, V-E-N-K-A-T, will also post yep. that on the show notes. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Varsha, and good luck in your orals. You'll do great. Um, and thank you all for listening. Thank you for Duncan Barton for our image and Jonathan Lear for the music. Thank you to all the mothers-in-law and fathers-in-law out there who listen. Uh, you guys make up 90% <laughs> of our viewership. If you like the show, rate review us uh, and uh, tell your uh, mothers and fathers-in-law. And if you're not married, get married so that you can tell your mothers <laughs> and fathers-in-law. Um, I will be back uh, next week uh, probably with some more interviews. Uh, see you then. <laughs>